In Indiana, we just went on vacation. That meant that every year, somewhere in the summer, you'd schedule your week or two weeks, and you'd pick a destination, and you would go off, you know, to the Outer Banks or to Florida or off out west to Grand Canyon, whatever it was that you did. And people would pick their vacation, and they'd be gone for two weeks, and they'd come back after two weeks, and they had celebrated their vacation. And then I got here to Michigan, and we don't take vacations. We just go up north. And... I've had to learn the difference between up north and vacation. In fact, I've learned a little bit about up north because now we do up north ourselves as a family too. But up north, I don't know how you would describe it other than like this magnetic force that I think is because winters are so nasty here that when the sun finally comes out, it's like, and we're all just sucked up into the northern parts of our state, which I get it. It's a beautiful state, isn't it? And just about anywhere you go up north, is absolutely beautiful, but it's like this big sucking sound that goes on. Every time you step outside in summertime, everybody's just getting sucked up north. Well, up north is more than just a place, though. I think up north is a space. And for so many of us, and now I'm at us too, where we go up north, it's a place where we go to rest or to relax or to recover, or to hang out with the family, to make some memories. It's a place where we go to get our batteries recharged. It's almost like we step into another world, and wherever up north starts for you, it's like going through this portal into another place. And we just kind of hang on through the spring. Excuse me. We hang on through the winter and wish for the spring. And is it like if we can just get to warmer weather... We can step aside from some of this dreariness that's been weighing us down, and we can get that breath of fresh air, we can get a little sunshine, and we can step into this other world for some relief. Well, as we start this series, that's exactly what I hope will be true, that you will be able to step through a portal into another world where you will find some relief, where maybe you'll be re-energized, where you can get some perspective, but where you can step away from the world that you're in. And not the world of Michigan, though, but the world of whatever's going on inside you, the world of whatever's going on relationally, the world of whatever's troubling you, that you can step aside from that world and that you can step into a new world. And that's the world where Jesus is. But it's not going to be in Michigan. It's going to be in a place called Galilee. Because actually, Jesus spent most of his ministry up north. Turning water into wine, that took place up north in Galilee. Uh, Walking on the water, that took place up north in Galilee. Raising the widow's son, that took place up north in Galilee. Feeding the 5,000, again, that took place up north in Galilee. And Galilee was the most northern region of Israel. And most of Jesus' ministry was spent in Galilee. But that raises a question to me. Why? Because Galilee was not the religious center of Israel. That was in Jerusalem, down south. And that's where the religious leaders were. That's where the the religious discussion was going on. That's where the thinkers, that's where the movers and shakers of the religious world, the rabbis, they congregated in the south towards Jerusalem. And for Jesus, who would be the greatest religious uh, religious leader ever, it would make sense to me 
that he would spend most of his time in Jerusalem. He's going to intersect with the religious community there. I mean, the streams flow out of Jerusalem, and he can be part of that scene. It seems like the perfect point of intersection for me. And instead, he chose to go to Galilee. And so I want to explore that question this morning. Why did Jesus choose Galilee over Jerusalem? And it wasn't because the scenery was better, but there were some very specific reasons, I believe, that he did. And those reasons mattered back then, but those reasons still matter to us today. So let's explore some reasons why Jesus may have chosen to do most of his ministry in Galilee. The first one might just be to say, well, didn't he grow up there? I mean, it seems like it should be obvious, right? Nazareth, that's the town he grew up in. That's in Galilee. That's up north. And well, it was a walking culture back then. People walked everywhere that they went. And so it probably would have made sense that Jesus just growing up there, he'd know the people, he'd know the roads, he'd know the customs, he'd know the culture of that part. It just makes sense that he would minister there, right? Well, yeah, I, I don't disagree with that. But I still come back to this question. Well, okay, fine. But why did... God choose to have Jesus grow up up north. There's some bigger reasons that are out there. And those are what I want to explore today. And I want to explore that by going to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. You can follow along in uh, your Bibles or you can follow along online um, with the YouVersion app. And we're under the events tab there in the uh, lower right-hand corner. But if he, or excuse me, Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. Now, Isaiah 9 is a familiar passage to us. And we usually pull it out at Christmas time. And we pull out verse number 6 because it goes something like this. For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, uh, Everlasting Father, Prince of God, Prince of Peace, Mighty God. And we pull out those verses at Christmas time as this prophecy that Isaiah was giving regarding the Christ child that would come. But that prophecy that we quote at Christmas time starts in verse number six. I want to back us up to verse number one and read verses number one and two because these verses are also part of the prophecy and they're an important part of the prophecy. It says this, nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. So it's been a rough time there. God's going to honor Galilee, and here's how he's going to honor Galilee, verse number two. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. And Isaiah was actually a prophet to Judah, and he's warning Judah that you're going to face destruction here if you don't change your ways. But in the process of that, he refers back to Israel, who suffered their own mishap because of their own rejection of God and had been attacked by the Assyrians. But when the Assyrians came, they came from the north, so above the Galilee region, and they came down and they attacked. But the areas that they attacked were Zebulun and Naphtali. When the Israel was divided into 12 tribes and they, and they took their land places for those 12 tribes, they went 
different groups went different places, but Zebulun and Naphtali went north, and they settled in the north. But when Assyria conquered, they came down from the north, and Zebulun and Naphtali paid the price for it. And they took the full brunt of the Assyrian assault. And Jesus, or Jesus, or excuse me, God is saying here, Isaiah is saying here, that the gloom and the doom and the destruction that you suffered, Zebulun and Naphtali, we're going to bring you some light in your darkness, and that is actually going to be the Messiah. And so the first reason that Jesus was born in Galilee was to fulfill prophecy. And just as Isaiah had said, he will be, you know, unto us a son is given, a child is born, he'll be all these names. In that same passage, he said, he is going to be from Zebulun and Naphtali. And I wasn't born there, but he grew up there, and he ministered there to fulfill prophecy. Let me show you some maps here I think will be interesting. On the left here is where these tribes settled. So Jerusalem's right here. This is the tribe of, uh, of Judah and Benjamin, the southern kingdom that Isaiah is talking to. But up here, this beige area is Naphtali, and this is Zebulun here, and there's the Sea of Galilee. If you transfer over to this map, okay, there's the Sea of Galilee right there. But this area here in beige corresponds basically to this area right here. So in Jesus' time, he comes to this area that had been so oppressed by the Assyrians and to bring some hope and to bring some grace to their story. Well, we go on and we read in Matthew chapter 4, verse number 15 and 16, this. And this is Matthew basically quoting from Isaiah here. He said, land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. It's a little bit different from what Isaiah said. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. And so Matthew gets this idea that this is a fulfillment of prophecy. And as you read through the book of Matthew, Matthew is constantly quoting from the Old Testament because he's demonstrating that Jesus was the promised king or the promised Messiah. And he keeps going back to these prophecies and saying, see, here's one that was fulfilled. See, here's another one that was fulfilled. See, here's another one that was fulfilled. And in Matthew 4 here, he's saying, he's going back to Isaiah 9 and saying, Here's another one that's fulfilled. Jesus would be in the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, or the Messiah would be in that area there. And so he's following up and proving that. But it reads a little bit different because Isaiah said this, in the future he will honor Galilee of the nations, but Matthew says this, Galilee of the Gentiles. Well, it that's what Isaiah meant when he said nations. Galilee of the nations was not just the Jewish kingdom here, Israel. It represented all the people that lived in Galilee. And Galilee was the most diverse area of Israel. In fact, there were more Gentiles living in that area than anywhere else in Israel. And so even in that prophecy from Isaiah... What Isaiah is saying is that Jesus is going to come to this area, but one of the reasons that he's coming to this area is because that's where the nations lived. And with the Assyrians, when they came in, they, they basically took the upper class of the Jews and took them out 
and they replaced them with upper class from other places. And, and the Assyrians were constantly, you know, re-engineering the, the dynamics of, of the populations. But this area had become heavily populated by Gentiles. And when Jesus came, he came to the Jews, yes, but he also came to the Gentiles. And that matters to me and to most of us this morning because we land on the gentle, Gentile side of the equation there. And so the fact that Jesus came to Galilee was a statement to you and to me that, yes, this is for you. The mystery of the gospel, Paul talks about that, the writers of the New Testament talk about that. The mystery of the gospel was that it was actually for the Gentiles too. And that astounded the Jews. But Jesus was coming here and saying, what I'm bringing, the kingdom I'm bringing, the salvation that I'm bringing, it is for the Gentiles as well. And so that's the second reason that Jesus ministered in Galilee. It was to communicate to people back then, but to communicate to us today, it's for us. It's for the Gentiles. There's a third reason it shows up in John chapter 7. It says, after this, Jesus went around in Galilee. He did not want to go about in Judea because the Jewish leaders there were looking for a way to kill him. But when the Jewish festival of tabernacles was near, Jesus' brother said to him, Leave Galilee, go to Judea, so that your disciples may see the works that you do. No one wants to become a public figure and, or, or, uh, and act in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world, for even his own brothers did not believe him. Jesus ends up going to this feast, but he ends up going secretly. Until about halfway through, he finally is just like, okay, and he just stands up and he, and he speaks. And when he speaks, it sets everything, you know, creates an uproar, which is why he hesitated to start with. But from a very simple, pragmatic um, angle, one of the reasons that Jesus did most of his ministry there in, in Galilee is it kept the, the Fuhrer down. The people in Galilee were less upset because they weren't part of the, the Jewish uh religious system that, that so often stood in, in opposition to Jesus. So it, it lowered the opposition. It kept distance, it kept him from, from uh, distraction and harm. And so part of it was just a very practical consideration. But I share that passage because there's an interesting part of it at the end here. If you jump down to verse number 45, Jesus does go down to this feast. He does speak, speak up. It does cause an uproar. And the Pharisees employ the temple guard to go and have Jesus arrested. And they go to have Jesus arrested, and they come back, and they haven't arrested him. And this is what gets said here. Finally, in verse number 45, finally the temple guards went back to the chief priests and the Pharisees who asked them, well, why didn't you bring him in? No one ever spoke the way this man does, the guards replied. You mean he's deceived you also, the Pharisees retorted? Have any of the rulers of, the, uh, of you Pharisees believed in him? No, but this mob knows nothing of the law. There's a curse on them. Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier and who was one of their own number of Pharisees, said, Does our law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what he has been doing? And they replied, Are you from Galilee too? Look into it and you will find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. Interesting statement, isn't it? Because Isaiah said, The prophet would actually minister in Galilee. And so the religious leaders who had tuned in to the Bethlehem side of the story 
completely missed this side of the story. So Jesus actually embarrasses them in the process here, and they have missed out on the prophecy of this book that they're in, in, of the of the scriptures that they're studying there. But if you go on in the story, if you follow in your Bibles there, there's probably a black line, and there's a story that's inserted right there. It's a bit of a parenthetical story. It's the, it's the story of the woman that's brought to Jesus, and all the hypocritical Pharisees want to stone her, and Jesus says, okay, wait a minute, who's ever you know, innocent can throw the first stone? That story gets dropped in there as a parenthetical. But if you read through John and, and, and see that as a, as a big parenthesis, when you get to John 8, 12, Jesus says this, and it really relates back to this whole uproar that's been caused by his speaking in the temple. And Jesus spoke again to the people and said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And you almost get the feeling where the religious leaders are saying, no prophet can come out of the north here. Where Jesus is saying, oh yeah, I am that prophet. In fact, here's the proof that I am that prophet. I am the light of the world. If you go back and look at that passage in Isaiah, if you go back and look at that passage in Matthew, what does it say? It says, he is the light that shines in the darkness. And Jesus stands himself and says, I went to Galilee because Galilee needed light. Galilee was the region of Israel as well that was the least religious, that was also the poorest, that was the roughest. That was the toughest area. It was the area that people in some ways avoided because it was more lower class, lower education. It was the area that needed hope the most. And Jesus chose to go up north, I believe, to take light into darkness. Well, today is graduation Sunday, and oftentimes we speak to graduates and some of them are getting spoken to by other people other than me. So let's just speak to all of us, okay? But when we speak to graduates, we often say to them, hey, you know what, you're, you're starting off in this next great adventure in life, and, and we want to make sure that you're equipped, and we want to make sure that you're motivated, and, and go make your mark on the world, and go uh, experience the best, and, and go make it happen. And it's kind of a rah-rah session, right, where everything's going to be good, and we paint this picture of this sunny future that's out in front of all of our graduates. And to be certain that's what we should be doing, and that's what waits for us, at least episodes of sunshine and, and good things and great things. But I think sometimes we fail to say that there will be darkness as well. And I think sometimes we fail to do our graduates, or our young people, or just all of us, a favor, and that is to say, you know what? It's not always going to be light. Sometimes there's going to be darkness. And as a graduate goes off into the world, they're going to discover that what most of us have already discovered is that there are times of light, yes, but there are also times of darkness. And I want to say to all of us is if you're experiencing darkness, here's the good news. We know who brings light? Because we know who the light is. And so Jesus steps into Galilee because he wants to bring light. 
But Jesus will step into each one of our stories and bring us light. And let me just finish up this morning with five ways that Jesus wants to bring light into your story. The first is one that we've been singing about quite a bit here this morning, and that's love. Jesus brings love into your story. So when you experience the darkness of rejection, or the darkness of loneliness or self-doubt, or the darkness of feeling lost in the crowd and being invisible, or feeling insignificant, or feeling weak, or feeling unimportant, Jesus shows up in your Galilee and says, Oh, I love you. And we celebrated communion this morning, and we talked about that, but I want to repeat it again. Jesus loves you no matter what. And there's nothing that you can do that will change that. Because love is based on himself. And whatever your darkness happens to be, and however darkness happens to hit you, you can take comfort in this, and you can find light in this fact that Jesus loves you with an everlasting love. We don't always feel unlovable, do we? But you're loved. And it's not just anyone who loves you. It's Jesus Christ who loves you. And in his Galilean ministry, what was it really? It was a ministry of love, wasn't it? We were constantly interrupted by people who had huge needs. And every time Jesus would stop and say, here, let me help you. Because I care about you. And so whatever your darkness is this morning, you can find the light of God's love. I'm going to skip down to G here in our outline. Guidance. When you feel the darkness of confusion or having to make tough decisions or just feeling lost, not knowing what to do next, trying to figure out what's right or wrong in a situation, or facing things where there's no good answer or solution, and you just kind of feel that gloom or that darkness, Jesus provides guidance too. Jesus' ministry was about caring for people, but Jesus' ministry was also about teaching people as well. The Sermon on the Mount, by the way, that took place up north too, in Galilee. But he said what? Hey, turn the other cheek. Or he said, hey, go the extra mile. Or he said, when you pray, pray in secret. Or... When you pray, pray like this. And and he gave the model prayer because Jesus was all about giving guidance. And when we face situations in life where we don't know what to do, we can go back to Jesus. We can go to Jesus in prayer and say, Jesus, please help me to know. Please show me. We can go to Jesus also in the Word of God too and say, Jesus, please teach me through what you taught other people. And so where you don't know what to do, Jesus wants to be your guide and to bring you light. Healing. When you live through the darkness of loss or failure or injury or suffering or pain or betrayal or abuse or neglect or illness or emptiness, there is so much hurt and pain that's part of life. Jesus is the healer. What is it that Jesus did more than anything, really, when he walked on this planet? He healed. Oh, you're deaf? Here, let me give you your hearing that. Oh, you're blind? Let me give you sight. Oh, you have leprosy? Let me take that from you. Oh, you can't walk? Rise up your bed and walk. And Jesus brings healing. And most of us experience injury in our lives. Maybe physical, often emotional situations that we've gone through where we've ended up pretty much beat up and stomped on. 
And Jesus says, I came to Galilee because I came to people who were hurt and injured, and I bring healing into their story. I think that's interesting that sometimes Jesus didn't just say, be healed. Sometimes he said, your sins be forgiven you. He wants to bring healing in every part of your life, emotionally, spiritually, all of these ways. Truth. Jesus brings light when you're facing the darkness of doubt or fear or lies or indecision. And we live in a world where truth is obscured. In fact, that's the greatest weapon of the enemy is to confuse and to get us to believe things that aren't true. And he has a lot of different ways that he goes about doing that. Sometimes he just puts people there that are just loud. And we're convinced that because they're loud, they must be right. Or, or, or we're confronted by people who keep telling us the same thing over and over again. And the repetition wears us down. But Jesus says, no, I want to bring truth to your story. He says in John chapter 7, he says, what truth sets you free. I want you to live freely. So I want to provide truth in your story. And so when we face the darkness of, of doubt or, or fear or these things where mentally we can't get it figured out, Jesus says, let me help you. And let me show you what truth is. Because falsehood is the wrong path that eventually always takes us to the wrong place. And there's a lot of people in our world today that are saying this is true because that's what they think is true. The truth is based on who God is and who Jesus is and what the Word of God says. And we can go back to that. The truth is the way it is because it's the way it is. We don't get to create truth. We only get to discover it. But Jesus is the perfect one for pointing out truth in darkness. I skipped over the I, but I is for inspiration. When you're in the darkness of listlessness or depression or cynicism or you can't find the motivation or you're fatigued, you're, you're questioning if you don't make any difference at all, look to Jesus as your light of inspiration too, who went through a lot of the same things that we go through. In fact, in, in Hebrews 12, the writer says, Consider him. He endured opposition from sinful men. But consider Jesus so you will not grow weary and so you will not lose heart. And so when we're just worn out and beat down, we can look to Jesus for inspiration. As he kept going, so we can keep going. As he leaned into the Father, so we can lean into the Father. As he cared about people, so we can care about people. And that's part of the inspiration too, isn't it? As Jesus was a light in his world, we can be a light in our worlds. And as we go up north this summer, we're going to be talking about Jesus and many of these different stories and, and different events and different interactions that he had while he was up north in Galilee. But in each one of those situations, Jesus brings light to the situation. He brings his love. He brings his inspiration. He brings his guidance. He brings his healing. He brings his truth to the situation. But he wants to bring those things to your situation as well. And that's why we're going up north. Because it's not just a place. It's a space where God does some incredible things. And my prayer is that he'll do some incredible things in your life this summer.